So I want to welcome everyone uh, who's here tonight uh, to the uh, Lunar Observance evening and beautiful night here in Redwood Valley. Finally some warmth and uh, open windows, air moving, uh, very pleasant conditions. And it's just always a pleasure to be in a community where uh, monastics and uh, lay folk come together to practice Dhamma, reflect on the teachings, and just uh, be with each other in a very harmonious, uh, skillful way. Fairly rare in the world, so just taking a moment to reflect and appreciate that. Um, yesterday at tea time, uh, there was a group of us talking about many different things. Uh, one of the topics that came up in a couple of different ways were some questions around uh, concentration, uh, the development of the meditation practice, um, teachings that people have heard that say um, that one really needs to uh, develop a significant level of concentration before the insight practice uh, can be of any significant benefit. And it wasn't explicitly stated in this way, but oftentimes what arises from that is the question of you know, how much concentration do I need to be able to develop insight? Yeah, one hears that question quite a bit. And it's almost like, in, in my mind, as, as I've considered these things over the years, and this will be a, a, a repetitive refrain that many people have heard from me already, and you'll probably hear again in the future, but to keep on going with it. But um, it's like asking that question kind of almost um, sets you up for... It's a loaded question, in a way, uh, because it's operating from an understanding of concentration uh, as a translation of the word samadhi um, that is taught a lot, uh, this, under, this way of understanding concentration is taught a lot uh, from traditional teachings, traditional teachers uh, in the uh, Theravada tradition. And um, it has a connotation that has been developed and expanded on for, you know, a couple of thousand years. Um, and I think, you know, without trying to sound disrespectful to any of the later traditions from, from where the uh, teachings on samadhi uh, translated as concentration uh, come from, uh, that we've been missing something uh, and there's been kind of more attention being turned back to the original teachings uh, of the Buddha for a, a bit more comprehensive, gentler understanding of, of the development of concentration as samadhi is translated. So, 
I'm not going to harp on it too much because it's a, it's a, it's a very, uh, it can be kind of a confusing uh, topic if, if one is really um, honed into how the teachings have been uh, interpreted from later traditions and, and taught and presented. And with uh, varying levels of, of success for some people. Um, but just to kind of, uh, it, it keeps coming up, as I said last night, it keeps coming up, uh, it, or in the tea time, uh, as, as I mentioned. It, so it, it's obviously still something that's on people's minds. Um, you know, that, again, that quintessential question of how much concentration do I need to develop uh, to be able to develop insight. So basically, I think my answer, it was a quick answer because we didn't have much time, but was more or less redirecting the question to what is samadhi? Uh, what is it that we are trying to develop? Uh, because it's obviously a very important, it's the eighth of the eightfold path, uh, samma samadhi. And just encouraging maybe uh, a, a rethinking of how the word is used, how we translate it, how we consider it, and see the effects that it has in the heart and the mind. Because when I think of concentration, um, to me, again, I've said this again a number of times, uh, you think of a very narrow focus um, that's trying to be quite exclusive, like, you know, when you're a kid and you're trying to study in the classroom and your teacher and you're, you're distracted and you're kind of moving about fidgety and your mind is going all over the place about where you'd rather be than sitting at the desk looking at a book, you know, and your teacher comes up to you and says, you need to concentrate more. So there's that kind of rigid pulling together, okay, focus, 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 uh, right here on this, on this book. And, a, you know, kind of a tight feeling comes up from that. And then also another way that the word concentration is used, uh, say like in a, um, uh, a cleaning solution or a chemical or something like that where you buy the concentrated version of it. Uh, and uh, you know, what that generally means is that they've managed to somehow stuff more of the essential ingredient into a smaller bottle, into a smaller space. This is concentrated solution. And if you kind of bring that kind of connotation to meditation practice, uh, you find yourself trying to stuff a whole lot more of something into a small space. And sometimes that's the way, uh, honestly, sometimes that's the way it's kind of presented, that you have this very narrow focus on a very small uh, point, uh, a small tip, uh, uh, and you don't waver from it. And when you do, you, you pull yourself back to it and try and hold it very steady, very uh, intentionally, uh, exclusively, uh, not paying attention to anything else, not being aware of anything else. And so it becomes a very small, narrow focus, say on a particular part of the body, the nose, the, the abdomen, whatever it is that's being taught. Uh, as uh, a way of uh, uh, shutting out a lot of experience that seems to be distracting from the single object. 
So this is a lot of times what we bring into our practice and saying, okay, well, how much of that do I need so that I can then you know, see things the way they truly are with insight? And I think it's just so much better to redefine what it is that we think samadhi really is. Uh, and because so many of us, including myself, have, have tried this other approach, uh, not with a whole lot of success, um, and maybe sometimes quite a bit of frustration uh, and tightness. And it's just not a very pleasurable experience. Um, some people are able to do that um, kind of uh, intense focus uh, and uh, you know, kind of suppression of, of input from the world around us, uh, including the contents of our own mind, thinking mind. Uh, and when one is able to do that, uh, one can develop a very blissful state of mind uh, and maintain it for some periods of time. And then when the conditions change and one isn't able to uh, sit that in that quiet, still, quiet, uh, isolated place uh, and comes out of that form of concentration, then the underlying defilements are still there, ready to spring up and take over once again. So maybe a reconsideration uh, is useful for some. Um, I found it to be so. And to um, consider the teachings that talk about uh, mindfulness uh, and then also samatha and vipassana. Uh, sometimes samatha, settling the mind, calming the mind, is conflated with the term samadhi so that we develop samatha, calm meditation as it's uh, described, uh, in order to uh, achieve samadhi, concentration and that we develop um, mindfulness as a practice, uh, sati, uh, in order to achieve um, insight or in order to gain insight. Uh, and so um, those, that's often a, a classical way that it's, it's presented. But <clears throat> my understanding, my current understanding, is that what seems to be more um, uh, appropriate to what the Buddhist teaching is, is that we develop the, the four foundations or the four establishings of mindfulness, samasati, um, and that the development of these foundational qualities of, of mindfulness of the body, of feelings, of uh, the mind, and uh, certain um, dhammas uh, experiences, uh, development of these fully <coughs> results in both Samatha and Vipassana, calmness and insight, calm and insight through the development of the satipatthana, the foundations of mindfulness. And then with the development of a settled and clear mind, you know, kind of conjointly uh, in tandem with each other, um, then the result of that is a growing uh, stability of mind, uh, a firm establishing of the mind, uh, a composing, a collectedness, a pulling together of the mind that is, has fewer and fewer obstructions and fewer and fewer hindrances, like the five hindrances, resulting from the mindfulness practice 
that results in uh, calm and insight. And then as the mind settles and clears, but is still very alert and present to the phenomena that come in through the sense bases and the, and the intellect especially as well, that this is what we call samadhi. Uh, so it's the result of mindfulness, uh, development of samatha vipassana, samadhi, is the result of that. And it's very aware, it's very open, it's very broad, uh, it's not shut off, it's not exclusive, it's very inclusive. And it is very peaceful, it's very settled, not because of excluding all sorts of other input, uh, but because um, the mind is naturally opening and relaxing itself from the influence of the obstructions that are there uh, through uh, having conditioned the mind with greed, hatred, delusion, and all of its uh, manifestations, particularly, say, in terms of the five hindrances. So samadhi is it's a result of um, this, this consideration, this mindfulness practice. And um, it's accompanied by a gradual decrease in the lessening of those forces that, that obstruct the mind, uh, that obstruct us from experiencing this peaceful openness, uh, the fading of the hindrances. So if we consider this approach uh, and the fact that uh, samadhi can be re-experienced, redefined in this more broad, open, still very aware, very clear, very alert uh, state of mind um, that, by the way, can be experienced in any posture. Uh, right samadhi, it's described in the teachings, in the suttas, as as uh, being experienceable, not only just in the sitting posture, but while standing, walking, um, and lying down in all four postures. So if we consider it uh, as that, um, then we see that the object um, of our practice also needs to include, and in particularly, primarily include um, a... Uh, a lessening, an abandonment of those obstructions, of those hindrances that, uh, that keep us from experiencing that state uh, of clarity and peace and alertness. Presence. Because the, the result of that, the presence, that presence of mind that we call samadhi, is able to clearly see that which really obstructs us from realizing a very, very profound form of, of liberation. Um, that mind that is uh, in samadhi, in this clear, alert state, is able to see 
very clearly the arising and ceasing of all of our experience right in the moment. And this has been the answer that some of the Thai uh, agents have, have used to describe how much, how much concentration, quote-unquote, uh, do you need? And well, and it's basically enough to see the arising and ceasing of phenomena. So even if we, you know, whether we call it concentration or, or uh, collectedness or composure, um, that's one of the aspects of, of having that uh, clarity and, and stillness and peacefulness is to be able to see arising and ceasing. And also to be able to see when um, defiled states of mind do arise, how if it's something that we, you know, that we really crave, a craving comes up in, in our hearts, our minds, and we run after it, then if our mind is much more collected and settled, then we see the pain of, of clinging, the pain of craving, the pain of clinging, of holding on. Um, and if we see that from the mind of samadhi, then we're much more likely to uh, let it go, to, to relinquish it. And with a clear mind uh, gathered together in samadhi, then we also see the release, the freedom, the peace uh, with this relinquishment. So it becomes a really important state of mind to, to spend a lot of time in and dwell in, in all aspects of our daily life, uh, in order to let go of the obstructions that keep us from uh, seeing clearly, and to get that sense of uh, disenchantment uh, with the world around us uh, in terms of the ways that we constantly seek gratification and then try to avoid pain. Uh, so this is the benefit of samadhi. Um, one of the... Um, so, uh, as I was saying, the... Uh, one of the primary uh, tasks that we need to do is to learn how to abandon um, these obstructive mind states uh, to provide that space, uh, to clear the space. And one of the qualities that the Buddha uh, mentions is uh, extremely important uh, is the Pali word apamada, often translated as heedfulness uh, or circumspection. And there's a Dhammapada verse that's uh, very wonderful uh, that talks about apamata, heedfulness, in that it's the um, heedfulness is the path to the deathless. Heedlessness is the path to death. The heedful never die. The heedless are as if dead already. So that's a very powerful statement about the quality of apamada. And, you know, just to kind of think about that one for a minute, the, particularly that, that third line, the, the heedful never die, doesn't mean that, you know, like this physical body and this mind, you know, don't pass away. Uh, 
based on causes, you know, the, the natural cycles of things, but more, and that the, the uh, heedless are as if dead already. Those, those two lines, that the heedful um, never die means that, um, in a sense, um, suffering is never brought into existence in one who is truly heedful. It just doesn't arise. So birth, the birth into suffering doesn't happen. So consequently, one doesn't have to die. If one isn't born into, into the world of suffering, then one doesn't die. So that heedfulness, uh, the heedful never die. And the, the, the heedless are as if dead already, meaning that one who is heedless and not heedful uh, is just like the living dead, completely unaware of all the suffering uh, that they bring into their lives, the unsatisfactoriness that they experience through just ignorance, through not knowing uh, what they're doing. So that underscores, uh, I think, the importance that the Buddha puts on, on apamata as a quality, uh, heedfulness. And it also uh, refers to being heedful of, of this precious, rare opportunity we have as human beings to really understand and experience and develop this path uh, and to take full advantage of it, be heedful. Uh, Buddha's famous last words, um, to be heedful, uh, strive on uh, with heedfulness. Because all things that uh, have the nature to arise have the nature to cease. The other, a couple of other qualities that go along with uh, how to uh, be aware, developing this heedfulness, uh, to be able to abandon unwholesome, un, uh, unskillful mind states that obstruct us are the, are the qualities of hiri and otapa, uh, sometimes translated as uh, kind of like moral shame uh, or shame and, and moral dread, which are very kind of strong negative words in the English language, more maybe friendly words of like conscience and concern. Uh, conscience when the, the arising of conscious conscience when we do something that's uh, painful or harmful, the feeling of that, the experience of that sense of oh, uh, kind of a wholesome shame, uh, and the wish not to to do it more, the wish not to engage in in things that are harmful to people, being more that uh, concern, particularly concern for others. So they're called the guardians of the world. And, and combined with heedfulness, uh, those three qualities um, naturally will result in us wanting to hold back from harmful activity, to restrain ourselves from harmful activity in body, speech, and also eventually the, the mind itself. So these are our protectors and our guardians, and we need to uh, be alert uh, so that we don't just keep causing ourselves more obstructions. And, and, and when we develop that sense of alertness and that uh, heedfulness, 
these qualities uh, that result in uh, restraining ourselves from doing harm, uh, body and speech especially, um, we learn how to become more responsive to the world around us rather than reactive. Uh, and I think that's an important distinction because when we're confused and under the sway of um, craving and, and aversion and fear and anxiety and um, delusion, uh, restlessness, when we're under the influence of under the influence of these qualities, we tend to be more reactive. Uh, uh, but with clarity and heedfulness, we can be more responsive in a skillful way. So, you know, the reactive side of us, like in, a spe in speech, it's so easy. It's like somebody comes and says something that's unpleasant or criticizes you, then the, the reactive response is, is some sort of quick, snarky comment, you know, just to... Uh, you know, the snappy rejoinder that uh, you unload on somebody. Uh, that's the react response. But the uh, response, the, the more responsible response um, that's with clarity and uh, heedfulness uh, will be one that helps to defuse a situation rather than uh, complicate it. Responsibility, I, I like to think of the word responsibility as just turning it uh, on itself and say that's it's really actually the ability to respond, uh, the ability to respond skillfully. So with Appamada heedfulness in Hiriyanotapa, we are able to uh, see uh, more clearly uh, with less reactivity and reduce those um, obstructive states of mind. And with the elimination of these, particularly in the, in the way that teachings are presented, the elimination of the five hindrances, um, that is the basis uh, for sama samadhi. Uh, so that we're not concentrating on an object in the practice, but we are allowing collectedness to unfold, composure to open and develop uh, based on this settling of the mind and clear seeing, the samatha and vipassana, that opens up our mind to clarity and relinquishment of, of the obstructions. And this samadhi is the natural result of that. So if, you, if, you, if, you, if you're one of the ones of some of us anyway who have kind of struggled with that whole notion of you know, how, much, how much concentration do I need to develop insight, if we kind of redefine the words and, and how we use them, then the answer just becomes clearer. Yes, of course, we need to have a, a peaceful, clear, alert state of mind um, that's unwavering. Uh, 
in its observation of phenomena and in its observation of how we create uh, unsatisfactoriness and difficulty in our lives. Um, and we need that kind of clarity and insight together uh, with the settledness of mind to be able to sustain uh, a form of broad, open attention uh, because the underlying states of mind that keep us obstructed just are very firmly embedded and, and will keep arising in all sorts of sneaky ways if we're not attentive. So this is the practice. This is what we, this is what we are developing. Um, this open, clear alertness uh, and settledness to be able to catch ourselves uh, before we get fooled and overwhelmed. And it's a, a gradual process. doesn't happen quickly all at once. Uh, and it's just a matter of um, patience. Uh, we develop. We, we also need to develop skillful qualities to help support all of this, and patience is, is one of them. Uh, and taking the long-term uh, approach, uh, that this will unfold in its own way, uh, but we have to use our heedfulness uh, to keep us focused, to keep us on, on the path. And appreciating the benefits as they come in slow and, and little ways, uh, the moments of release, the moments of letting go, um, that reinforce that, okay, there is a path uh, that works, even if we haven't made it all the way, uh, and it seems like it's kind of a long haul, um, that uh, we can be buoyed up and inspired by the... Uh, the small insights that we do have, the moments of, of letting go, the moments of relinquishment and peace uh, that we can experience, and to let those uh, inspire us and pull us on, and, and then seeing uh, the results and the fruits and the benefits of this kind of practice over the long haul from getting to know uh, some of our uh, teachers and, and traditions that uh, have uh, come uh, from the Buddhist teachings and how they've sustained and maintained uh, this uh, possibility uh, for so many thousands of years. And that the possibility is still there uh, and we just need to take advantage of it. So I'll leave that for a reflection for tonight.